The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So if you haven't been here, if you're visiting today from like Honduras or something, or maybe you're visiting from somewhere else, or you haven't been here in a while, just to give you context, we've been going through the book of Genesis. As a church, we spend most of our time up here going through the New Testament book by book, and then in our Sunday school classes, we do a lot of Old Testament, but I just thought it was important to go back to the basics, to the beginning, to the foundation, so I wanted to do Genesis 1 through 3. We might go beyond chapter 3, but we've been having a wonderful time in God's Word in Genesis chapter 1, taking it verse by verse. We are now in pretty much verse 26 and 28. Up to this point, we see this is God telling us how everything began. The Bible is God's word. It's true. It's reliable. It's authoritative. It's universal. It's binding. It's true history. God put the Bible together through his prophets, reliable men of God who are moved along by the Holy Spirit, ensuring that what is in it has been preserved through the ages. And so this is really God's firsthand account of all how all things came into being in the very beginning. That's how the Bible begins. That's the book of Genesis chapter 1. And that's where we have been And we saw how in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All that exists, all matter, energy, doesn't matter. Uh, The solar systems, the heavenly realm, God made it all. And then God is using Moses as his author in 1400 B.C. to write down this inspired account of the true origin of all that is and has been created. And it's very simple in terms of, The weight is written, the amount of information given, the terminology used. If you just read it at face value, take it at face value. Very simple to understand. Now, believing it, that's a different story. That's actually a supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit to enlighten the blinded, sinful human mind to understand it. And we can only really understand it by believing it through faith through the help of God and his Holy Spirit. And so we saw how Moses said God created everything in the beginning, and then he just goes day by day. And really what God is doing is he's crafting like this master masterpiece or what I would say like a a mansion, just this beautiful mansion. And his goal ultimately, or the pinnacle of his creation, is he wants to prepare a mansion that is suited for the greatest of his creation to live in, and that would be humanity, man and woman together, humanity, the human race. That's the pinnacle, the apex of all of God's creation. And so we say, we see in Genesis 1, day by day, literal days, God is preparing this mansion from the foundation all the way up, creating a habitation whereby the human race can live on earth in perfect fulfillment of God's plan. And so we've seen how God has built this mansion, or what we call the earth and the universe, and preparing it for his greatest creation of all, which is humanity. At the beginning, God created everything, and it wasn't formed yet, and Moses said it was tohu and bohu. It was formless, needed to be shaped. It wasn't a mansion yet. just had the materials, the two-by-fours and the concrete. It was tohu. It was also bohu. Nobody lived there. It was empty. It was void because humans weren't there yet as well as animals and those kind of things. And so over the course of six days, God is going to eliminate the formlessness and the void. And so we saw uh, through the first six days, God has successfully created everything in creation suited perfectly for the first two human beings. So last week in 
basically day six, part one, we emphasized verse 26, where God said, the triune God said unto himself, consulted with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have existed for all eternity. Before anything existed, it was just the triune God of the universe who was consulting with himself and declared, let us make man in our image. And he did. And he defined what man was. Verse 27, it said, he created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So when God said, let us make man in our image, what he meant was, let, I'm going to let us make mankind. Let's make the human race. And let's start with the first two, Adam and Eve, man and woman together. And to, together they will fully reflect beautifully a true representation of what God's character is like. And so that was the big emphasis last week where God said to himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's make humanity in our image and our likeness. Two very specific Hebrew words. And we explained those last week. Let's make humans, Selem and Demuth are the two Hebrew words. They're similar and they complement one another, yet they are distinct. And basically it was, let's make a physical representation of the infinite, invisible, non-physical, spiritual triune God. And let's make a, a replica of God in physical form, the human body. That's what that image meant. And then the second one, in our likeness, emphasized similarity, but not total sameness. Humans are like God, but humans are not God. Humans are like God, but humans will never become a God. Humans are like God, but humans are finite. God is infinite. Humans are like God, but they are not deity. Only God is deity. And that word likeness in Hebrew emphasizes that. There's a similarity. There are similarities. And yet there's a, a permanent distinction between created man and a transcendent, almighty creator, infinite universe, uh, creator of the universe. And so the implications from being made in the, the image and the likeness of God we showed last week from Scripture was because human beings are made directly in God's image, every human being is valuable to God the Creator. That can't be emphasized enough. That is clear in Scripture. That's why Ezekiel 18 said, because you've been made in my image, I own you. God owns every soul. That's true of everybody. It's true of every person in this building, regardless of where you are spiritually, regardless of... I said last week, your ethnicity, your gender, your socioeconomic makeup, your theological beliefs. God owns you. He owns me. He is the creator. We're accountable to him. And because we've been made in his image, that gives inherent, innate value, dignity, sanctity to every human person. And it begins at conception. Scripture is clear about that as well. Psalm 51 verse 5 and many others. And in the Psalms where it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made while yet in the womb. God is the one fashioning us, our soul and even our physical body. And we are made in his image. So that's why I pointed my finger last week and said, pointed at you and said, you are precious. It, it made some of you feel good. You are special. You are unique. You are sacred. This is the sanctity of life. And that's because every human being is made in the image of God. And that's why... Uh, the scripture, even the New Testament, confirms every human being is precious, is sacred. The sanctity of life. God's the giver of life and the only one who takes life. Is, that's the way it should be. And James, the book of James in particular, tells us that. That every human life is utterly, innately valuable, sacred. Being made in the image of God. And that's why murder is wrong. That's the basis of it. So last week... My big 
uh, encouragement to you was, you are sacred. Now, at the same time, I could also say, you are sinful. And then I would have, you know, really offended many of you. Could have pointed to myself. I am sacred, yet I am sinful. That's what scripture teaches. I am special, but I am fallen. I was created by God, but I need to be born again. So those are parallel truths. They need to go together. So we can't forget that. That's clear in scripture. Nevertheless, even if you're a sinner, even if you're not a Christian, that doesn't eradicate or eliminate the reality that you were made in God's image and you are sacred and precious to him. Valuable to him. So those have to go together. So that was the big truth last week was just the dignity of the human race, man and woman together. And together, man and woman reflect these invisible attributes of the Almighty God. God is invisible. He has no body. He is a spirit. Yet he is a person. Think about that. God speaks. We do that with a mouth. God thinks. We do that with a brain. God hears and listens. We do that with ears. God does things and creates. We do that with hands. Yet none of those things, physical attributes, are true of God who is spirit. Nevertheless, he does all of those things just as truly as we do. But he does it as a divine spirit. But because we've been made in the image of God, we've been made first and foremost as persons. Every one of you is a person. And we have physical attributes that reflect the very character of God. And I even proposed last week that the physical body that God has given humanity is also meant to reflect what God is like. He is king. He's the sovereign one. He reigns over. And God has suited us with a physical body to do that very thing over the rest of creation. And we're going to see that even more specifically in our sermon today. As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and jump right in. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. We're not even going to look at all the details in those three verses. We're going to look at one main truth in those three verses. So on day six, beginning of day six, God created all the animals after their kind, all the land animals after their kind. That must have been early on, probably the first thing on day six. And God instantaneously did it. Boom. Then verse 26, right after that, probably early in the morning on day six, God said, let us make man in our image. And so then you go to Genesis chapter two and see the details of how God created the first two human beings. He created Adam first out of the dust of the earth and literally blew life into Adam, making him a living soul. And then immediately God had Adam do some tasks, tend the garden of Eden and also name all the animals after their kind. And that's what Adam did. And after he named all the animals, came to the realization that there was no partner for him, a complimentary female partner, like there was for the rest of creation. Mr. Giraffe had Mrs. Giraffe. They seemed very happy. And Mr. Alligator had Mrs. Alligator. And however he went through that, that must have taken several hours. And Adam literally did that. And then God said, it's not good for you, Adam, to be alone. I will make a perfect compliment for you. And then God created Eve to compliment him and to populate the rest of the earth with humanity. That's where we come from. So that's how it happened in terms of chronology. And that's what we looked at last week. Now, I want to emphasize a new truth here, verses 26 to 28. So let me read it. God creates Adam. First, just before he does, it says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us, that's the Trinity talking, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. We talked about that last week. And then the first thing God says after he creates or deliberates about creating the human race, the next thing he does is he verbalizes the purpose for which humans will be created. It's amazing. 
This is amazing. He does it two times. We're going to make humans in our image. And then right away he says, verse 26, their purpose in the middle is, and let them rule. So God creates them. He tells us of his plan to make them. Let us make. And then he tells us the pattern by which he'll make them. Let us make them in our image. And then now he gives us the purpose for which. All in half of a verse of the human race. It's amazing. What is that purpose? And let them rule. Let Notice it's them. Man and woman together. Joint rule. Co-heirs. Vice regents together. There's some equality there from the very beginning. There's difference and yet equality. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God creates humanity and he says, and when I create humanity, I want them, one of their main purposes is to rule. And I want them to rule over the entire earth. It's a universal rule. And it's rule over all of creation. All of the animals, all of the birds, all of the land animals and creatures and all that is even swimming in the seas. Man is responsible for ruling over all living creation. Not only that, he says, over the earth, over all the earth at the end of verse 26. So in addition to all things that are alive, God, man is responsible for ruling over the earth itself, which would include the environment or plants and whatever else goes with the earth. So that's God's desire. That is his plan. Then instantaneously out of nothing, God creates the first two human beings, although he uses uh, the ground to do that as he creates Adam and just breathes the breath of life into him. Verse 27, that is affirmed. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female together, he created them. Then God rehearses or repeats once again, for the sake, I believe, of emphasis, verse 28, the purpose for which he created humanity. Now, I, I did a little roving survey spontaneously today with some of our church people some of you on the campus and i came up and thought what what are you doing pastor cliff why are you standing so close and <laughs> and i asked you what is your ultimate purpose on life in life what is your and i got all kinds of answers actually all the answers that i got were good answers biblical answers acceptable answers very specific answers what is your ultimate purpose in life here's some of the answers i got um to share the gospel with unbelievers. That was some, what somebody said their ultimate purpose on life is. To share the gospel with unbelievers. That's actually a good, that's a good answer. It's a legitimate answer. Somebody else said to serve people. Okay, that's a good answer. Somebody said to serve my husband. That's another good answer. But I'd say there's even a more specific ultimate, ultimate purpose. Those are all actually manifestations of the major ultimate purpose the ultimate purpose of humanity is the same for everybody and it's stated right here why are humans here why were we put on the earth and that's a question everybody asks whether you're seven years old 17 or 70 why am i here we hear about famous hollywood stars all the time committing suicide killing themselves ultimately sometimes we find out it's because they didn't know what their purpose was on life it all just seemed empty and futile they didn't know what their purpose was Yet the purpose that humanity is on the earth is stated right here in Genesis chapter 1, right in the Bible. First thing that God says very clearly, he repeats it twice, and this is your purpose and my purpose. That's what I want to highlight this morning. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. 
and rule over it. First, he said in verse 26, rule over all of creation, rule over the earth. Then he adds a synonym in verse 28, subdue it, subdue the earth. It's a different word. It's a little different than rule. He says, subdue it and rule over. That's man's purpose. What is your ultimate purpose today? If you're a Christian, you have a biblical worldview and you believe scripture. It's really very simple. What is my ultimate purpose on earth? My ultimate purpose is on earth as I have been put on this earth by God, the creator. And my purpose is to rule over the earth on his behalf. That's the answer. And it will manifest itself in many different ways. And yes, if you're a Christian wife, part of that will be that, yes, I've been put here by God, the creator. He saved me. I understand why I'm here on earth and I am here to serve him to rule on his behalf, to represent God. And in my specific role as wife, I want to serve my husband as one of my main roles. That's totally true. And every Christian can say the same thing. I am here on earth to serve God, to rule over the earth. And one of the ways I do that is sharing the gospel with every unbeliever. Those are all legitimate. Those are all applications of this one main binding truth. So I want to go a little deeper on this one simple purpose that God put all of us here for. So let's look at these four points that I came up with or an outline just of this idea of what it means to rule on God's behalf on the earth. It needs clarification. By the way, this is amazing. If you know the Bible, here God gives the purpose clause in Genesis chapter 1 of humanity, of every human being, and the rest of the Bible is a commentary on that command or purpose. It really is. It's a commentary on it. It's an explanation and an expansion of it. Shows how it's supposed to be done, God's intent, challenges to it, things that try to undermine it, and ultimately how it will be fulfilled throughout the entire Bible. It's absolutely amazing. We can only scratch the surface this morning. Why are you here, Christian? Why did God put you on the earth? To rule on the earth in God's behalf. Point number one, what is our purpose? I put to represent, God created human beings to represent him on the earth. This ties directly into those Two Hebrew words I talked about, image and like. We were made in God's image, and those two words emphasize being representatives of what God is like in a physical form on the earth. So this ties right into God's ultimate purpose of us ruling on his behalf. We couldn't rule on his behalf the way he wants us to, ideally, if we didn't have the attributes, characteristics, and all the qualities that make us a person, including our physical body the way that he has given to us. In God's infinite mind and infinite wisdom, the best way to the greatest capacity that we could represent God on the earth is by virtue of the way that he made the first two humans, Adam and Eve. Absolutely amazing. And that is our purpose. God made humans to represent him on the earth. And that's why those two words, image and likeness, they mean represent. They mean reflect, be a reflection of. Accurately represent who God is. That's what I want you to do, Adam. And Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they did that. Get this perfectly. They were fulfilling the initial mission to represent God on the earth. By the way, this purpose hasn't changed. God still calls every human being to represent him on the earth. He still requires that. It's interesting that even though, the, by the way, we're going to get to this, that the fall or sin did not take away or revoke this purpose, this main purpose of humanity. Created a little bit of a speed bump and some problems that God had to deal with, but he knew that was going to happen. But nevertheless, that command and purpose by God remains. We are created by God to represent him on the earth, so much so that 
The Pentateuch literally says that Moses represented God to the people of Israel. Moses represented God to the Egyptians. And Moses represented God, the true God. Pharaoh believed in many gods, false gods. Moses believed in the one true God. And Moses represented the one true God to Pharaoh. So much so that scripture says that Pharaoh was a God or Moses was a God to Pharaoh. Moses was a God to Pharaoh. That's the terminology. It doesn't mean that Moses was deity or that he was to be venerated or worshiped. It just meant that he was an accurate, faithful representation of the true God of the universe to Pharaoh, the most powerful king on planet Earth at the time. So even there, 1400 B.C., many hundred years after the fall, Moses is still fulfilling this purpose for which God created him. Amazing. So that's our purpose. So think about your purpose and how that plays into your life, especially as we go through and flesh this out. I was thinking of some of the main uh, ideologies and religions of the world, some of the largest ones in the world, and ask, what is their purpose? So uh, Hinduism, for example, what is the ultimate purpose of Hinduism? They do have that stated in some of their sacred writings. If you talk to a Hindu, depending upon where they're coming from, they can articulate it, their purpose in life. It's, sometimes it's many-fold. But ultimately, it's to be freed up from this physical body, which they feel like they're shackled and imprisoned in. And also, while they are here, is to live virtuously and righteously on the earth. That's their purpose. The problem is you can't do that as a sinner. You can't do that without the help of Jesus Christ and his intervention. It can't be done. It's impossible. Also, one of the purposes of Hinduism is to have enjoyment in this life. That's a purpose. That's what you live for. You live for enjoyment and fulfillment. That is not a purpose in the Bible for why we are here. Same thing with Buddhism. Very similar. One of the purposes of that very large religion is to ultimately be freed up from the physical of this world, including the physical body, and reach nirvana and a higher state of being assimilated into the greater higher consciousness, which is invisible. And that is the very antithesis of what the purpose is in the Bible. Uh, Greek theology, Greek religion, even the, the wise Greeks and poets, very similar idea. The goal in this life was to get freed up from the shackle of this physical body. So a common denominator in false religions, especially those three ideologies, is that they have a negative view of the physical body. The physical body is bad, matter is bad, and that which is non-physical is good. And that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says our goal our desire, our ultimate purpose, actually, is to stay in a physical body. And as a matter of fact, get a better physical body. That is ideal humanity, resurrection man. There is no other theology, ideology like it in the world. Any religion that proposes or believes in any kind of a resurrection, they got it from the Bible. They stole it from the Bible because it's the only place it comes from. And it flies in the face of pretty much most philosophies of the world. So the purpose, to represent God on earth. Number two, let's go to this power. God has a purpose, but he gives us actually the power. He's delegating the necessary power to Adam and Eve to actually fulfill the imperative. I want you to rule over all of creation. And God enabled somehow Adam and Eve to do that very thing, to rule over all creation, to rule over the earth, to subdue it. A synonym is subjugate it and to rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky. So God enabled them apparently to some degree to fulfill that mission, which means this is authority that God gave Adam and Eve from heaven. And it's an authority that was delegated to them. It wasn't from them on their own selves. It wasn't inherent. They got it 
from God. Authority on loan from God, you could say. They were responsible for it. They were stewards of it. It was a gift given to them. And by the way, this is all true of us. These two Hebrew words for rule used in verse 26 and rule over in verse 28 and subdue in verse 28. Synonyms used throughout the Old Testament. Here's some synonyms of these two words, what it means for Adam and Eve and us to rule over the rest of creation, to dominate. Whoa. But that's what it means to dominate. You look in a Hebrew lexicon, that's the first word that pops up to dominate, to reign, to control, to subjugate, to manage, to care for to keep order, to maintain order and civility. Get this one, to use, to use. I've been saying that as we go day to day, that God pretty much created everything else for the use of man so that mankind could use it. God created the sun, moon, and stars for man to use, for his benefit. That was the purpose clause God gave, to give light to humanity, to give life to humanity, to allow humanity to manage and monitor time so all of these things all the land animals eventually will be even food and clothing and labor bursts of beaten companionship on and on humanity will be allowed to use animals both on land sky and sea all these things are created to benefit man and god's imperative to humanity is to rule over and to subjugate this implies they have power Human beings do. This also implies that human beings are, get this, more important and valuable than the rest of creation. Yes, human beings are more important and valuable and precious and sacred than animals and plants. Yes, human beings are more valuable than dolphins. And now some people, some dolphin lovers, they just go crazy when they hear that. I mean, there are literally people who think that animals are either equal to human beings in value or that animals actually are more valuable. Than human beings. That is actually a very intact worldview that dominates much of America, if not the world today. This idea that creation, plants, animals, they're not destructive. They don't hurt the planet. Humanity, man, is an enemy of the planet. He's destructive. He's not as valuable. He's not as precious. And we see that articulated in many different ways. But this is just a Christian worldview. Humanity is the apex and pinnacle of God's creation, made in his image. And that's not true of anything else in creation so this assumes man's power his autonomy over creation that he's more valuable than the rest of creation by the way this command to rule over the rest of creation has never been revoked in the bible so it is still intact it's the only purpose that's mentioned in genesis chapter one of god of why god put humans on the earth that's pretty profound it's the only purpose stated at least in genesis chapter one in the beginning to rule over the rest of creation on his behalf that's an important defining phrase at the end to rule on the earth representing god representing the true god representing the true god in truth and with justice and biblically and not in a sinful manner but in a righteous manner all of those clearly are informed by the rest of scripture so we need to keep the proper balance in mind this command is also to all humans it's not just to adam and eve it was to all of their descendants it's not just to believers and christians or saints this is actually a generic command to all of humanity because God created every human and his purpose hasn't changed. You mean unbelievers have this purpose for living on the earth? Yeah, they have and they still do and they have all throughout history. 
So there are wonderful privileges that come with that capacity and ability. Every human being, whether you're a believer or not, has been, dele- given, been given delegated authority by God to fulfill this purpose in a modicum of ways, even if you're not a Christian. And unbelievers are doing it. This is called common grace. The common grace of God that enables all people, believers or unbelievers, to fulfill at least partially this original command on the earth. It's absolutely amazing. And here's, here's a good little comment on that from a pastor explaining that. He says, what you see, this command here in Genesis 126 and 28 of ruling over the rest of creation is known to theologians throughout the last thousands of years as the cultural mandate. This is a cultural mandate from God to hum- the human race. Often referred to as the cultural mandate, this original vocation given to humanity remains the source of that indefatigable impulse to build cities and civilizations, farms, gardens, vineyards, houses, empires, grandiose art. Every person, believer and unbeliever alike, receives a distinct vocation for his or her calling in the world. And the Spirit equips each person for these distinct callings in common grace. However, God's word in the cultural mandate is law, as opposed to grace. The mandate to subdue, rule, fill, and expand. Only after the fall in the garden is the gospel announced. So that's pretty insightful. Pretty amazing. So that cultural mandate still stands, and we're seeing the fruits of it. Uh, wherever we go through common grace through all people yet man's disobedience put a glitch in this mandate sin called the curse and the fall and that brings us to the third point so let's go there point number three excuse me and that's the problem so God gives Adam and Eve this command you need to rule on my behalf you need to represent me accurately they did apparently for a while Faithfully so, even Adam was walking in the garden with God, whatever that looks like or means. That's absolutely amazing. Without sin, without the intervention of Satan and sin at this point. So there was perfect harmony. Adam and Eve are real people. They're walking with God in the garden. They're having sweet, uninterrupted fellowship. And then there's that disobedience. There's that sin that messed everything up or at least undermined it. It's interesting if you go back and read carefully Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Listen, and I want to highlight one phrase there. God says to Adam and Eve, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and keep ruling, rule over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Put snake in there. That's what a snake is. It's a creeping thing. Told him up front, make sure you are ruling over all snakes. And he says, repeats it in verse 28. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, we realize that the serpent, he was more crafty than the other creatures, whatever that means. And in that transaction, Adam and Eve failed to do this very thing, to rule over, subjugate, dominate, take control of, preserve order, regarding this snake that Satan was using to deceive the human race and bring about sin and their fall and the curse on the earth. It's amazing. And that brought in and ushered in the first sin. And then if you look at Genesis chapter 3, so here they're supposed to be ruling, being in control of. They're the sovereign ones. They're literally vice God's vice regents on earth. This is their kingdom. 
They get to rule on behalf of God over this kingdom that he created, the kingdom of God on earth, and they blow it through disobedience and sin. Then everything is turned upside down as a result of sin because of God's curse on their disobedience. And that's Genesis 3.14. And God just goes down the line and punishes everybody that was involved in the first sin. Okay, first you, Mr. Snake. And that's Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this from now on, you're going to crawl on your belly. Maybe he had legs at one time. I'm removing your legs. Now you've got to slither around in the dirt and eat the dirt. And you will be despised by the human race for all time. So that was the curse on the snake. Then he curses Satan who's inside the snake. Okay, Mr. Satan inside the snake. I curse you. I put enmity and hatred between you and Eve and between you and your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be this ongoing battle between Satan and his descendants and the human race or the descendants of Eve, whether they're the whole human race or whether they're believers from Eve, culminating in Jesus Christ. So there's ongoing real animosity. There's real animosity and war going on between the human world and the spiritual realm, which is filled with Satan's demons. That's what it means. Animosity. So this perfection that God originally created the world with when he said it was good, 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 very good, is good no more. It's the curse of God upon pretty much all creation. And then he punishes the woman, Eve, and he says to Eve, from now on, because of your involvement in this, your disobedience, uh, you were the one to deceive, you gave to your husband, you disobeyed what I told you to do, you also will be punished, Eve. And she was punished with pain in childbirth. Why is it painful? To have babies, it came right here, a curse from God. Not only that, it's a twofold curse. You and your husband, Adam, got along perfectly in harmony before the fall. As husband and wife, you were one flesh. It was a beautiful thing. You had intimate, wonderful relationship and, in, and fellowship that was never interrupted. That is all changed. It's now turned on its head, and God cursed the marriage relationship. Specifically by saying, Eve, your desire, literally, you could put your lust Your lust will be for your husband. Your lust will be to control your husband. Same word is used, same phrase is used in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. And yet he will rule over you. There's going to be friction in the marriage relationship. A battle of the wills. This is a result of the curse. And then he goes to Adam. Adam cursed it is the ground because he... Remember he told Adam in the beginning when all things were good, good, good... Verse 26, verse 28, Adam, Eve, your responsibility, rule over the earth. That's the specific phrase, subdue the earth. That means the planet, distinct from all the animals. Control it, the ground, tend the garden. As a matter of fact, two of the first things that Adam did, according to Genesis 2, is he fulfilled this command of ruling over creation. Two specific examples, God tells us that God created the Garden of Eden and he brought Adam into the garden to tend it, to manage it, to rule over it, to be the king over it. So he was doing that just fine, fulfilling his duty to rule over the earth, taking care of the Garden of Eden. Then a few verses later in chapter 2, Adam fulfills his mandate again by God to be the ruler over creation. And two by two, God brings the animals to Adam. And whatever the name was of that animal, Adam gave them that name. He designated names for the animals. That's Adam ruling over creation. That is Adam fulfilling the command of Genesis 126 and 128. He was ruling over creation and literally gave them their names. And when you name something in the Bible, many times it's a sign of that you have authority over that object. Parents name their children. They have authority over their children. Yet at the same time, it's a stewardship gift you're accountable for that God has entrusted 
to you. So this was before sin. Adam is fulfilling his responsibilities. He's ruling over the earth. Everything's intact and in order. He's supposed to get his livelihood and continue living through the earth, through all the trees that God gave him, all those beautiful trees that he could eat from and live forever, eternally, without sin. Then here in the curse, God turns everything on him. The earth that he's supposed to find his sustenance from becomes Adam's greatest enemy. That's verse 17. Uh, To Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree that I told you not to, cursed is the earth. Cursed is the ground because of you, literally the earth. You're supposed to rule over the earth. Now it's cursed. You know what? It's going to rule over you. It's going to challenge you. It's going to undermine you. It's going to threaten you. It's going to take your life. And it, it does all throughout history. We see the earth as the enemy of man at times, whether it's in the desert and people starve to death. You can go on and on with examples where the earth literally becomes the enemy of man. That was not God's intent in the beginning. So man has to labor and struggle to keep the earth in order and intact because it threatens him from all sides, from the weather to even just trying to get his living out of the dust of the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you, the earth. In toil, you'll eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Thorns and thistles are a result of the sin. They weren't in the beginning The earth was perfect, good, without them. The thorns and thistles, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. You're going to have to work to survive. You're going to have to work hard to survive. It is going to be toilsome. It is going to be laborious. It is going to be painful. There are many times where you're not going to like your job. You're going to want to complain about your job. Does this sound familiar? Am I speaking to the choir here? That's why I don't give people sympathy when they say that. Pastor, my job is so hard, especially guys. Or men. It's so painful. It's so toilsome. I said, right on, man. You're fulfilling Genesis 3. Praise the Lord. God's prophecies are true. But that's what's going on. This is bad news. But nevertheless, even though it looks like bad news, God isn't going to allow sin to detract from this plan. Sin did not ruin this mandate or plan where God designed human beings to rule on his behalf on planet Earth. God has a plan. And that's the redemption of Jesus Christ, which takes us to number four, and that's the promise. God is going to redeem this original plan. Now, unbelievers can continue to fulfill this original command with a modicum of God's common grace, and they do, as people are just amazingly talented beyond belief to do certain things, either as an architect or an athlete or things that they even contribute to humanity and growing food and whatever else that blesses the rest of humanity, generically speaking, that comes from God and the cultural mandate given to all humanity in the very beginning. But that's not that doesn't earn spiritual favor with God. It doesn't earn forgiveness of sin. It doesn't earn a right standing spiritually before God, the judge, all those things. They are good in terms of blessing the people of the earth. But they don't earn a right standing with a holy God who must punish sin. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in and he redeems this original plan and intent for human beings to live on the earth as representatives for God. And that is first introduced in Genesis 3:15. Right in the midst of all these curses, there's this wonderful good news in Genesis 3:15. I mean, it is literally the good news is right in the middle between the bookends of bad news. Nestled right there at the end of verse 15 or in the middle. The last two verses. There's going to be a descendant of Eve, in the Hebrew, it is a singular masculine pronoun.
And God is talking basically to Satan. And he basically tells Satan, Satan, one is coming. He's a descendant of Eve, a descendant of the woman. It's going to be a man, a real human man. It's in the future. You're going to bite him on the heel. You're going to hurt him. That's how snakes hurt people. They bite on the heel. And if it's a poisonous, deadly snake, you get bit on the heel, you die. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Satan bit him on the heel. Satan orchestrated the plan for Jesus to be crucified on the cross. That prophecy was fulfilled at the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's right there in Genesis 3.15. Satan, you will be allowed to bruise him, this man, descendant of Eve, who will be a man on the heel. But... He shall bruise you on the head. And literally the phrase is, he's going to crush your head. You'll bite him, he'll crush you. You'll hurt him, he will destroy you. That is the promise from God. This is the gospel. Immediately after sin and the rest of the Bible, again, is a commentary on the promise of the coming Messiah who will redeem all of humanity, of those who believe in him and how Jesus Christ will become the perfect human being in a body, the perfect man, if you will. And all those that follow him, that he saves, they will be like him in a resurrection body and being able to reign over planet earth and represent perfectly God almighty in heaven on the earth. That's what the rest of the Bible is all about. It's absolutely amazing. That's why in the gospel of John, when Jesus is teaching publicly and Jesus says, he tells his disciples, if you have seen me in a physical body, yet this is the same Jesus who said in John four, that God is invisible he's a spirit you can't see him god is a spirit and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as jesus had yet later jesus says if you have seen me you have seen the father it's amazing if you have seen me you have seen the father in terms of his attributes his character and the fact that someday jesus christ is going to be in a physical resurrection body for all of eternity after his death he resurrected again that's how jesus exists today in a resurrection glorified body that is upright. And if you're a Christian and a believer, someday you're going to have a resurrection body made after the pattern or the image and likeness of Jesus's resurrection body, which you will live in for all eternity. Absolutely amazing. So Jesus is going to redeem this promise. That God's ideal is that humanity in a physical body will be living on the earth, representing him, reigning in his kingdom and reigning over his kingdom and being his vice regent on the earth over creation. But he's going to do this through Jesus, the Savior. I want to look at just a couple of passages to show you where this is true. If you have your Bible, you have Psalm 2. Here's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Actually, let's go to Psalm 8 and then Psalm 2. Psalm 8, this is King David, 1000 B.C. This is 1400 years after Moses wrote Genesis 1. King David, he is the second king of Israel. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He's writing Scripture. He's meditating on God's wonderful creation. He's meditating on the purpose of life. He's meditating on why am I here on the earth? Why, God, why did you make humans and put them on the earth? Man, some humans, they are messed up. I mean, David's, David had firsthand uh, examples of just people that are just messed up. I mean, and, and terribly so within his own family. Some of his own wives. Oops, he shouldn't have had multiple wives. Um, Some of his children trying to kill him. Some people who said they were his friend trying to kill him and have turned on him. So he knows, and even his own wicked sinfulness, being a murderer, adulterer, 
a lust-filled heart, yet he loved God, knew God, but he knew he was a despicable, pathetic sinner. So he's looking at all of creation, the beautiful sun, moon, and stars, and the grandeur of it all, and like, man, God, why do you... Really? You, you think that humans are more important than the rest of creation? Why, God? I don't understand that. We're so despicable. In verse 3 of Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man, what is humanity that you take thought of him and the son of man that you even care for him? Yet you have made him, humanity, male and female, the human race, a little lower than the angels is what it should say. A little lower than the angels, at least for a time. While we are on earth, right here in our finiteness, fallenness and sinfulness, we are a little lower than the angels, practically speaking. In other words, angels have more supernatural power than we do, the good angels. But not for long. That won't remain forever. But currently, that's the way it is right now. You've made humanity a little lower than the angels, and you crown humanity with glory and majesty because we've been made in his image. That's exactly what he's talking about. Verse 6, and you make him... Now, this is after the fall, after sin, after the curse, and yet David can still say, verse 6, God, you make humanity, the human race, to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the pass of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Why could David say that? Because he was speaking as a prophet, because God knew that the Messiah was coming. The Messiah would be born from the loins of David. The Messiah would be Jesus, uh, God incarnate, the perfect man, perfect God at the same time in a literally a physical body with all the personality traits of a human being that are perfect reflections of almighty, infinite God. And that's why Hebrews and Colossians say that Jesus as the resurrected man was the perfect exact representation and in the very nature of almighty God and that Jesus would fulfill God's mandate that Adam couldn't do. Adam was commissioned by God to rule on the earth. He blew it. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us we had a first Adam and God blessed him and gave him a commission and he sinned. And so we need a second Adam, the last Adam, and that is Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. As well as dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sins of individual souls, there was a corporate plan a corporate salvation a corporate reality that jesus was also commissioned to fulfill satisfy and save and it was this mandate that god had issued that humans would reign on the earth as vice regents in the kingdom of god representing him over all of creation and jesus is the one who's going to do that so now that you were in psalms now go from psalm 8 to psalm 2 and this is a prophecy about jesus fulfilling this divine mandate of ruling on the earth on behalf of God, Genesis 126 and 28. It's yet future. It hasn't happened. It's going to happen literally on the earth. Uh, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? Why are people so mad at God? That's what it means. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their counsel together against who? Against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his uh, Messiah saying, let us tear their fetters apart. There's going to be a war, a conflagration, those who hate God against God and against Jesus, the Messiah. Yet, verse 4, God is in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion in Jerusalem, in Israel, my holy mountain. That king is Jesus. 
And I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. This is a prophecy about Jesus, his first coming, but also his second coming. And when he comes in his second coming, he will come in glory as the resurrected Messiah, king of the universe, with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's going to land, says the Bible, in Jerusalem with his feet on the Mount of Olives. And he is going to take over the reign of planet Earth. And he's going to do it for 1,000 years. And he's going to reign with perfect righteousness as an omnipotent king, but literally in a physical body on earth. And no one will be able to get away with any lies, any deceit, any deception. He will literally, literally reign in order and civility and truth and righteousness on the earth. And he's going to do that for 1,000 years. And it's going to be a sight to behold. And not just to behold, but get this, you get to participate in it. Think of that. Because that's the promise of Scripture. So I want to close with this in Revelation. Go to Revelation. So if you're a Christian here today, this is a prophecy of you in the future. Specifically, I believe in the millennium that is yet to come. That is a 1,000-year period where Jesus Christ literally reigns on the earth. Not the new earth, but this earth. It, it may be renovated a bit according to the end of the book of Isaiah, but it won't be perfect. Sinners will still live on this earth. Yet Jesus will reign as king. And Revelation chapter 2. Here's Jesus talking about promises to believers. So if you're a Christian, this is a promise to you from Jesus himself. He who overcomes. If you're an overcomer, if you believe in Jesus, if you're really a Christian, all these promises refer to the afterlife. Sometime in the future, after you die in this life, this promise is true of you, overcomer, in the future. Revelation 2, verse 26. He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. There it is. Someday you're going to be a vice regent. You're going to be either a, a prince, a king, a queen, a princess. And you will rule over the nations on behalf of Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. So we get to rule with Jesus Christ on the earth. That is, that's literal. Genesis, uh, Revelation 3.21, another one. Promise to the overcomer, promise to the Christian. Uh, he who overcomes, if you're a Christian, someday in the future, this promise is for you. I will grant to you, get this, to sit down with me, Jesus, on my throne, heavenly throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. How exciting is that? This is true. This is real. This is a promise from God. It's actually going to happen. It hasn't happened yet the most exciting thing in the world this will be for a thousand year period in this life the best we got is an average about 70 years that ain't nothing a thousand years in the future on the earth with christ reigning on his behalf with him from his throne that's christianity he reiterates it revelation 5:10. you have made them this is a prophecy of the future the end of the age how jesus is going to wrap everything up you have made them that's believers to be a kingdom and priest to god to our god and they will reign upon the earth and paul says they will reign upon the earth you will reign upon the do you not know that you will reign over the angels and that you will judge nations don't you know that is he slapping the corinthians upside the head what are you squabbling about what amazing promises from god and then finally we'll close with this revelation chapter 20 this is in the future. This is that millennium I'm talking about that is yet coming. This is the end of the age. Satan is going to be finally taken by God, thrown into demon prison, locked over where he can't bug anybody for 1,000.
1,000 years. During that 1,000 years where Satan is no longer an influence anymore, verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Who's sitting on those thrones? Probably believers of the ages on their royal thrones. And judgment was given to them. That's power. That's authority. That's fulfilling Genesis 126 and 128. This is in the future. You mean I get my own throne? Yeah. You mean I don't have to share my throne with my husband? Yeah. Whippy! If you're a Christian. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life, they resurrected, and they reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Wow. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is just a, a term that includes the resurrection of all the saints of all the ages who at that time get a resurrection body where they can reign with Christ for 1,000 years. All the way from Abel to Noah to Melchizedek to Abraham to Job to Paul to your grandma to you. That's the first resurrection. Over these, the second death, that's eternal hell, has no power. But they will be priests of God. What does that mean? You have direct access to God. Direct access to God. And of Christ. You ever think that, man, there's going to be so many people and angels in heaven, I'm never going to have access to Jesus. He's way over in the corner and this crowd is so big. How am I going to get over there? It says right here. Access to Christ. And will reign with him on the earth for 1,000 years. I want to close with this thought. I kept saying that humanity, the human race, is the apex, the pinnacle of God's creation all throughout Genesis chapter 1. More valuable than the sun, moon, and stars. More valuable than all of the plants. More valuable than all the birds of the air. All land animals. All animals in the sea. Humanity is even more important and precious than the earth itself. How do I know that? Because human beings are the only thing that God creates that lasts eternally, forever. That's it. Sun, moon, and stars, they will be done away. All plants and animals, they will die. The earth itself will perish and be burned into nothingness, according to Second Peter. The only thing that God created that will live on in immortality is every human being. And Scripture is clear that every human being that is created will live on eternally, either in heaven or in hell, consciously, with Christ or separated from him. That's the Christian worldview. That's reality. And if you're a believer, that's what you have to look forward to and celebrate this day. If you are not a Christian, I know that what I preach reflects the truth of the Bible, and I believe that the Bible is the living Word of God. It's like nothing else. And that, and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit is going to use the truth of the Bible to continue to work on your mind, on your heart, on your conscience, to prompt you to meditate and take seriously these truths so that God might enlighten your understanding, so that you might see the truth and understand that, yes, Jesus is indeed the only Savior, the Savior of the world. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. It's a wonderful privilege to worship you. Uh, the treat of having believers from other churches, particularly from Honduras with us today, who worship the same God, who are in the same family of God, with the same elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for knitting our hearts together. Thank you that this truth in the Bible resonates with every true believer. God, thank you for reminding us of our purpose here on life. It's unique. 
simple, and yet we can't fulfill it apart from your grace, your help, and especially a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the perfect man. And that is our heart's desire. God, we commit this day to you. We pray that you go before us in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.